The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Three of you are awake today. Awesome. Um, hey, I want you to open your Bibles this morning, um, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are going to share on version as we've been doing for about the last month and a half now. So you'll be able to see those words on the screen um, as well. But I want to take a moment. Um, for those of you who, who are familiar kind of what's been going on in our community over the last few days, um, someone with really close ties to Gearing Central and Summit Christian College um, and our church body, Justin Santos, uh, passed away. So what we want to do is we want to uh, take a moment right now and just pray for the Santos family, pray for those different communities, pray for our community as we kind of wrestle with, um, like, how do we respond when we lose someone, especially when they are, when they are young? So would you uh, close your eyes and bow your heads and pray with me today? God, we are just stunned at the events of the last few days here uh, in regards to the Santos family. So we want to bring our, we want to bring our grief and our sadness to you. And we know that when Jesus was here on the earth, he grieved for loss. So we want to bring that to you. We want to join our brothers and sisters in Christ in mourning loss. And we also want to pray for, pray for the community. We want to pray for the, the relationships that Justin was a part of because every single thing that I read on Facebook this week over the past few days talked about the impact that Justin had on lives. And whether they were kids at Camp Rock or just friends and acquaintances through Summit, he made an impact. And we know that he made that impact because of your work in his life. So today we just lift up those communities. We lift up our community. And we pray that as we, as we hear you speak to us today, that we would have new minds and new hearts to believe we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and senses to experience the fullness of the gospel. These things are only done by the Spirit. So we're thankful that you are here with us today. And we just ask that you will remain, and we know, confidently we ask, that you will remain present with, with the Santos family and friends and just the different communities that he was a part of. And it's in your son's name, amen. So over the past several weeks, we've been talking about who we are as a church. We've been talking about the idea of us being a united church. We did that on the first Sunday in January. And we talked about how we are God's church. That was one of the very first things that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter one. I'm, I'm writing to you about God's church, about the church of God, about Christ's church. This isn't our church. This is Christ's church. And we have to have that proper orientation 
that this is about God and his church. And when we know that, when we live confidently in the reality that this is God's church, there there are things then that we're not going to get upset about. We're not going to get upset about music styles or, or the things that tend to divide churches. We don't want to be divided over secondary things. We want to be united on what matters. And then last week, we talked about how we were a giving church. And one of the things I said was, we don't give to get. We give because God has called us to be generous. We don't give to get. We give because God has called us to be generous. And if you remember, when Paul was talking to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians, he said, when you give to this church in Jerusalem, what you're going to get back is they are praising God because of you. You're not going to get any financial return. You're giving so that God would be praised. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is when we give generously, can can we just be satisfied that someone else is going to praise God? Can that be enough for us? Or do we have to have more reasons to give? And the answer to that second question is no. When we give generously, when we are generous, our satisfaction comes that God's work is being done by him through the things that we give. So today, we're gonna talk about being a pro-love community and what that means for us. As Christians, we are called to be counter-cultural. And here's what that means. The things that our culture values, we value the opposite of those things. We are to be counter-cultural. We are to be counter to the culture. We are to be against the cultural values and the cultural norms. And when the early church did this, They were branded as troublemakers. To say the least, they were branded as troublemakers. They were accused of of eating flesh because Jesus told them to eat the bread and drink the cup and it's my body and it's my blood. And in the mid-200s, there was a Caesar by the name of Hadrian who asked this question. "Why, Why can't we stamp out Christianity? Why won't, why won't Christianity die? What is it about this, this religious sect, this cult that won't die? And there, was a, uh, there was a Greek writer, philosopher, and Christian by the name of Aristides, and he wrote something called apology. Now that word apology does not mean at least from this context, and I'm going to talk more about that word in a second. But that word apology does not mean what we think it means. When we think of the word apology, that's, we say we're sorry. But then what apology meant was a defense. I'm going to write an apology. I'm going to write a defense of something. And maybe you've heard the word, if you've been in church for a while, maybe you've heard the word apologetics. It's a defense of our faith. It's how we defend Christianity through argumentation. But that word also is a little tricky because argumentation now for us in our current context means I'm going to go on Facebook and I'm going to argue with someone, right? 
but I'm not actually going to argue with anyone. I'm going to type a whole bunch of things that I believe, and then I'm going to put in parentheses, no comments, please. Right? That's like my, one of my least, Anne and I were having this conversation the other day. That's like one of our least favorite things. Right? I'm going to lay out this big, long screed of vitriol, and then I'm going to say, no comments. Right? That's not what argumentation means. So in, in the Apology of, of Aristides, he talks about a number of different things. In the very first chapter, he proclaims that God exists because the world exists and that God is eternal, impassable, and perfect. So he is, he's laying out an, a, a, a defense. He's laying out an apology for who he believes God is. And then what he does throughout the rest of this letter that he wrote is he writes that there are four races in the world. He says there are barbarians, there are Greeks, there are Jews, and there are Christians. And then he spends the next 14 chapters or so explaining what each one of these things are and how they function and what they do. Um, if you are in version, I copy-pasted part of what Aristides wrote to the emperor um, Hadrian. And I'm going to read that um, if I can get my app to work like it's supposed to. It's on the screen should be on the screen as long as that part is working. We had some technical problems last week. There it is. Perfect. I know the font's small. This is Aristides to the Roman emperor Hadrian about Christians. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and earth, in whom and from whom are all things. So to start off, Aristides, Aristides says, this is who Christians are. And then what he does is he's going to list a number of implications because of who they believe God is, because of what they believe God is. Here's a response. Okay, this is how Christians behave because of what they believe and who they believe God is. He who gives to them who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there, is any, if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, listen to this, if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the need their lack of food. And verily, this is a new people. There is something divine in the midst of them. This is what he writes to Hadrian. Hadrian, you are trying to destroy Christianity. Let me tell you a little bit about these people. How do you destroy this? If you are the Roman Empire or any empire, if you are Babylon, think of empires throughout history. How do you destroy a people like this? They love each other. How do you destroy that? They sacrifice. They provide for the poor. How do you, how do you destroy a religious sect like that. You can't. When the early church functioned in the way that they did and when our church today functions in the way that we ought to as Christians, we can't be destroyed. So think of, think of all of the things, right, that we have read over the last several months about the fate of Christianity, about the fate 
of the church, about the challenges against the church. And I'm not naive. Maybe some of them are valid. But they're only valid against the church that's not doing this. See, we are called to do something. We are called to be something. So I, thinking about this message, thinking about what it looks like for us to be a pro-love church, um, I came up with, as a pastor, right? This will be shocking. I came up with three things. This is what we do. First is love commanded. The second is love explained. And then the third is love demonstrated. So let's read some scripture today. Um, very first thing is love commanded. This is John 13, 34, and 35. And this is Jesus. He says, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This is at the end of Jesus' life. It's the night before. It's the night he's betrayed. It's the night before he's crucified for us. And he gives them a command. And, and that word command is really important. It means command. I'm commanding this. I'm not suggesting it. I don't think it's something maybe you should do. I don't think it's something you should do when you get around to it or when you have time. He says, I'm giving you this command. Love each other. And then, you know, our question, because we're human beings, is well, what do you mean love each other? Well, love just as I've loved you. That's how, as believers, as disciples, as people who want to follow Jesus Christ, we are to love other people. In the same way that Jesus has loved us, we are to love them. And I love verse 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Think about that for a minute. Our love for one another is the thing that proves to the world that we are Jesus' disciples. It is not where we go to church. That does not prove to the world that we are his disciples. It's not what version of the Bible you read. That doesn't prove to the world that you're his disciples. It's not whether you wear a t-shirt that's like some fake knockoff of Gold's Gym. Do you remember that God's Gym t-shirt? Right? That's not how we're going to prove to the world that we are God's disciples. We're going to prove to the world that we are God's disciples by the way that we love each other if we are loving each other in the way that Jesus loved us. That's how we demonstrate. That's the, that's the love that's commanded to us. Here's, here's love explained. Right? So what does that mean? It's the way Jesus loved us. Well, how did Jesus love us? We can read the Gospels. And fortunately for us, Paul lays out something in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which if you've been to a wedding, you've heard these verses. So I'm going to say this again in a moment. These verses have nothing to do with a wedding. Okay? But this is 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 8. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but don't, didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge. If I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body. Now, if we were to, if we were to look in different translations, maybe your translation says if we were to look back into the Greek, what Paul says, what he actually wrote in Greek was, if I surrender my body to the flames. So if I am burned alive for the sake of the gospel. I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would give gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind or long and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures in every circumstance. You've been to this wedding, right? Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. I love the way God's timing works. Uh, Yesterday, I was on social media, and a a pastor that I follow on Twitter wrote, 1 Corinthians 13 was not written with a wedding ceremony in mind. It's not meant to give us warm, fuzzy feelings. This chapter is Paul's word of rebuke to a church marked by great miracles and charisma, but by little maturity and character. If you remember back to the first week of this series when we talked about being a united church, the church in Corinth was incredibly divided. They were divided because because some people followed Paul. Paul was one of the founders of the church in Corinth. Some people followed Apollos. Apollos was one of the founders of the church in Corinth. So they they were divided among lines of like, basically, who was their favorite speaker? They followed their favorite preacher. I know that doesn't ever happen in our day. And if you read through 1 Corinthians, what you'll see is is Paul really wasn't the best speaker. But Apollos was probably a pretty good one. So, So there was this division, there was this unity within the church. And they had all of these spiritual gifts that they were using but they weren't using them to build up the body. They weren't using them because they were unified. They were using their spiritual gifts so that other people could look at them and say, well, I have a better spiritual gift than you are. I mean, I stand on stage and sing, and all you do is greet. Right? Do we ever feel that way? Do we ever feel that our gift is unimportant? Or do we ever feel that our gift is more important? You would have fit in perfectly in Corinth. Because that's what's happening in the church. And what Paul says is, is you can have all of these gifts. And if you don't have love, you're just a clanging symbol. This is who you are. This is what you're doing. You can't understand anything I'm saying right now. Because all you can hear is this. 
we're a clanging symbol if we don't have love. And we do that on Facebook too, right? Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. I mean, I got this thing going on right now, but I'm really concerned about what's happening politically in our country. And if we would just get right with God, we would be able to fix everything and our world would be perfect. So let me tell you about Jesus. And all people hear from us when we do that is this resounding gong, this clang where our our message gets mixed in with something else. And that's why we talked a few weeks ago and we talked about unity. We talked about being, being unified around the things that are most important. Not being distracted because it's really easy for us to be distracted by the things that are happening in our culture. But we're called to be countercultural. We're called to not fit in. We're called to not be distracted. Which is why your argumentation on Facebook is just this. I know you think that you are the person that's going to win that person over with just the right words. And it's just not going to happen. See, it's not, it's not even our words. It's not even my words that win people to the gospel. It's, it's the love that we share for one another. It's the love that we demonstrate towards other people that makes this tremendous impact in their lives. And what I would love for you, one of the things I would love for you to take away from this is for you to be thinking about, like when we read that list, love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. Does that describe you? Does that describe your interactions with other people? Does it describe your Facebook post? Like the one I was, as I was rereading this this morning, it is not irritable. What? Do you know how irritable Facebook makes me? Well, yeah, you do. Right? How irritable are you? Keeps no record of being wronged. Well, Paul sure wasn't alive in the 21st century. Right? When we dig up something that someone said 15 years ago, Like, what crazy world do we live in? We live in a sinful world, in a broken world. And as Christians, we should not give in to this. We should not spend our time digging back through someone's Twitter history, trying to find out what they said 10 years ago. It's not what we're called to do does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. Man, don't we love it when somebody gets caught? Isn't that our culture? These aren't wedding verses. Jaime and Olivia, don't ask me to read 1 Corinthians 13 at your wedding this year. These aren't wedding verses. These are are verses that are meant to confront us that are meant to call us to repentance when we demonstrate love that's not this. And Paul is laying out for us very clearly what what love looks like. And this is hard. 
And we can't do it without the spirit who is, who's dwelling in the heart and in the person of every follower of Christ. You won't be able to on your own power. And this is what we're called to. And then, then lastly, let's talk about love demonstrated. This is uh, Acts 13, just verse 1. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. Now, this is one of those verses, right? If you're just reading your Bible and you hit Acts 13.1, you read that and then you just like keep reading, right? Sort of like the genealogy found in Matthew. That's why we spent time on that back in December. Like, I, I listened to a message this week and that sort of inspired some of this thinking today. And what this person did was he actually talked about each of these people. So it's good for us when we're reading our Bible, what we ought to do is we ought to press pause when we read a verse like this. We ought to dig a little bit deeper, right? The phrase that I use when we talk about this is you ought to lean in. Maybe I haven't said that in a while. But we want to lean in. So who are these people? Because this is just kind of a throwaway verse. We don't really, if we just read this verse without spending a couple minutes of research, we would have really no idea what's going on here. So the church at Antioch of Syria was the third city of the Roman Empire. So the third most important city, there was Rome, there was Alexandria, and then there was Antioch of Syria. Very important town, very important city. The first Gentile non-Jewish church was there. So, we think back a little bit into church history when the God, Christianity came out of Judaism and the fir, very first Christians were 99% Jews. Well, then Paul began to take the gospel to the Gentiles. The church at Antioch of Syria was one of these places and it was a largely Gentile church and it was sort of a home base for Paul. So when Paul was done doing his missionary journeys, he would return there. And the church among the prophets and teachers were a number of different people. The first was Barnabas. So if we were to pause for a minute, and maybe your study Bible, and you should have one, has an asterisk or some, some kind of footnote pointing you back to other verses. Well, in Acts 4.36, we learn that Barnabas's real name was Joseph. But they called him Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. So imagine, imagine what kind of person you have to be for someone to walk up to you and say, you know what, I'm not going to call you Joseph anymore. I'm going to call you son of encouragement. Because every time I get around you, all you do is encourage me. Do you know anyone like that? Like you kind of want them to shut it off at some points in your life. But Barnabas was such an encourager that he was called son of encouragement. His name, he was given a new name. And in Acts 4, we would read that he sold a field that he owned and brought all of the money to the apostles and just gave it to them to distribute. These are stories you should go back and read. Okay? So this is, this is Barnabas' story. He's this guy who was such an encourager and he was so keyed into what God had for him that when he sold his field, he gave all the money to the apostles. 
so that they could serve other people. In Acts 9.27, we would read that he brought Paul to the apostles and defended Paul to the apostles after he was conversion, after his conversion. We're going to talk more about Paul in a second. But Paul was, Paul was something. Pursuing Christians, chasing them down, arresting them, persecuting them, watching them be killed. This was Paul's life. And when he became converted to Christianity and shows up at the church's door, you can imagine that would cause some tension, right? If you had heard all of these things about this guy named Saul, and all of a sudden he shows up at your door, you might not let him in. Like, I know we're supposed to be people who love others, but this is Paul. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is the one who brings Saul to the apostles after his conversion and defended him. And he went on mission with Paul on his different mission trips. Next is Simeon, called the black man. Well, that's not very politically correct in 2021. Why do you think he was called that? Because he was black. Thank you. Like, are you, I wonder if you're, and we haven't even gone through all the names yet. Are you starting to get a sense of the diversity within this, within this group of people? That God, has, that God has called to be prophets and teachers? Next up is Lucius of Cyrene. So Cyrene is in, is in present-day Syria, or excuse me, present-day Libya in North Africa. So there's ethnic diversity and there's diversity based on where people are from. And then there's Menaean. It says in um, it says in the NLT that he was the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas. So maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. So let me tell you who King Herod Antipas was. He was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the guy who had all of, the, all of the male sons under the age of two years old in Bethlehem killed when Jesus was born. Can you imagine that connection? That that is your friend's father, probably your best friend's father. Herod Antipas had John the Baptist arrested. So now we're not, two de- now we're not three degrees of separation from Herod. Now we're two degrees of separation from Herod. Herod Antipas had John the Baptist arrested. Why was John the Baptist arrested? Because John spoke out against Herod when Herod had his brother's wife leave his brother and become his wife. Right? And we thought we lived in a dysfunctional time and era with our political leaders. Right? So this is a friend of Herod Antipas. And then... Herod Antipas had John beheaded at the request of his daughter. Can you imagine what some of these conversations were like when these guys got together? Think today, think today about some of the secondary relationships that you have that you have been judged for. You know what? I saw Mark Scanlon hanging out with this person the other day in town. Can you believe that he's in a, he's in a friend, he's in a relationship with him? How can you follow that person on Facebook? Don't you know that they voted for dot, dot, dot? 
Like think about, think about the way that we have these secondary relationships right now, how we are judged for these secondary relationships. Don't you think that that affected what was happening within the church? And then lastly, we see Saul, the real name of the Apostle Paul. Talked briefly about him a second ago. Here's a few more details if you don't know. Saul was from the city of Tarsus. And in Philippians 3.5, he writes that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. So Saul was a, this is a Bill and Ted's excellent adventure quote. Saul was a righteous dude. Right? Saul was, Saul was religiously righteous. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee. He kept the law perfectly. In Acts 22, 3, we read that he was taught under by a person named Gamaliel. You should read about him. It's fascinating what's going on. In Acts 8, before Saul was converted to Christianity, he was present when Stephen was murdered. In fact, he was holding the coats of all of the people that were throwing rocks at Stephen's head. Because everyone knows if you want to get full range of motion, if you're going to throw something at someone's skull, you don't want to be wearing your coat. So he was, he was holding their coats while this was going on. And then in Acts chapter 9, we can read that he's on his way to Damascus in Syria. And he has papers signed by the priests in Jerusalem to arrest Christians and bring them back in chains, men, women, and children so that they would be tried. And boy, was Paul hoping they were going to be executed for their heresy against the Jewish God. You don't think, like, Paul probably had no idea who Barnabas was, but you know Barnabas knew who Saul was, right? And instead, he was converted to Christianity. And it's, it's this, this demonstration of love that brings all of these people together into one spot that proves who Jesus is. It's a demonstration of what Jesus is truly about. Well, what about, what about us? So I've used the word context a lot. And, and maybe you know what that means. Maybe you don't know what that means. So I'm just going to, I'm going to refresh you what that means. So we all live in a certain time and space. Okay. We, we most, I think most of us in this room are currently living in Western Nebraska. We are certainly all right now in Western Nebraska. Okay. So that's our context. That's part of our context. So that informs the way we dress, for instance. So some of you, you dress like Western Nebraskans. And if you were to go somewhere else, if you were to go to New York City, you would seem out of place because you're not dressing like someone from New York City. Right? So think about all of the different types of context. We live in Western Nebraska. We live in the 21st century. We live in the United States, which is a democratic republic that elects our representatives 
Think about the way that that affects the way you think about ancient cultures for a minute. Think about that. We talked about this several months ago in Romans 13, right? We read um, that we are to we are to obey our government, right? And that makes so much sense to us because we're good Americans. Because by golly, I don't even know what I want to say this. Don't read anything into this. My wife just said, don't say it. We just had an election in November. I can say that, right? We cannot be offended by that. We had an election in November. We decided who our government is. Okay? So when we say that we're supposed to respect and honor our governmental authorities, that sounds really good to a people who determine who their government is. But to a people who are ruled by empire, to a people for whom if they were to gather like this in 50 AD in Rome, would most likely, if like in the least, they would be chased out of this room. See, so our context, where we live, the time we live, all of these things shape us. That's what context means. So, so a minute ago, we talked about what those three things look like. Like, what does love commanded look like? What does love explained look like? And what does love demonstrated look like for the early church? So what, how, about, how about today? What, are, what do these things mean for our context? Maybe you might ask the question, how does this apply to my life? I don't think that's the best question but it's an okay starting point. Like, what am I supposed to, I read this, John, that's great. What am I supposed to do with it? How do I, how do I interpret this into my own context? Well, one of the verses um, that is consistently on my mind is Matthew 28, 20. This is, at, this is after Jesus has been resurrected and he gives these instructions to his disciples and he says, go make, go make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 20, he says this, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you. So here's what I want you to know. When Jesus says, teach these disciples all, teach these new disciples to obey all the things that I've commanded you, he's talking to us. I was once in a church environment where someone said, well, Jesus was only talking to the disciples. He wasn't talking to me. So it's not my job to go out and make disciples. He was only talking to that group of people. And I thought my head was going to explode. Because it's just not true. Each one of us, as a follower of Christ, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are to obey all of the things. We are to do all of the things that Jesus commanded. And one of the things that Jesus commanded was that we were to love one another. So that command that Jesus made to his disciples is a, is a command for us. That's love commanded. We're to love one another as Jesus loved us. And then you can probably see where this is going. Paul's description of love to the church at Corinth is really a description of love to the church at Westway Christian Church or whatever church you happen to be in. 
whatever you're, wherever you're watching from home right now. Like this command is the same for us. And we can have lots of outward manifestations of success. We can, we can look into this room on a Sunday morning and be satisfied that we have more people here than we had the, the, the week before. We can look at our giving statements and say, yeah, you know what? We're being successful. We, we, we brought in more money in giving this year than we did last year. But here's the thing. If, if we're not loving one another, because of the inward dwelling of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter. I, I really want you to hear that. If we're not loving other people because of what God is doing inside of us, then those outward things don't really matter. And then lastly, we demonstrate our love for one another in the same way that love was demonstrated in early church. We want to be a gathering of people from, from different backgrounds. Not because we're trying to meet some sort of Title IX governmental quota. We want to do this because this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've never sat in a staff room and said, you know what, we've got to figure out how to get more um, Latinos into our church. <laughs> I'd love it. But not because we want more Latinos in our church. Because we want to teach people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like that's, that's what God has for us. And, and we want to be a people who are gathered together from different backgrounds and histories and experiences. And we want to be the church. One of the things that's been on my mind over the last few weeks is just this idea of community. And we don't build community. We are a community. And I would, I would ask you, as you think about what your role is in that community, are we, are we functioning in the way that the early church functioned? If someone who persecuted Christians showed up at our door on Sunday morning, would they be welcome? Well, how do you welcome people who are, vote differently than you? want us to think about what's happening in our world. Look at all of the ways that we are divided. Are we being cultural Christians and going along with, or are we being counter-cultural Christians? I'm going to read one more quote from Aristides. This is his closing section and again, this is all in, this is in you version. There's a link to the page where I got this from. I recommend you read all of his, um, all of his article, all of his letter. The Christians are just and good and the truth is set before their eyes and their spirit is long suffering. And therefore, though they know the error of these Greeks and are persecuted by them, they bear and endure it. And for the most part, they have compassion on them. I like that little tag. You know what? For the most part, they do what they're supposed to do. Can we just take them, like, be thankful for that? 
Can you imagine how we would feel if we read, without fail, they do this thing? Like we would compare ourselves to them and we would think, that's it, God, I can't do it. Thank God that mostly they were successful. As men who are destitute of knowledge and on their side, they offer prayer that these may repent of their error. And when it happens that one of them has repented, he is ashamed before the Christians of the works which were done by him. And he makes confession by God saying, I did these things in ignorance. And he purifies his heart and his sins are forgiven him because he committed them in ignorance in the former time. When he used to blaspheme and speak evil of the true knowledge of Christians. And assuredly, the race of the Christians is more blessed than all the men who are upon the face of the earth. What do you think it would be like for Christians if that's how people thought of us? And not because we were wishy-washy on faith or we gave into what the prevailing culture tells us that we are to give into, but because we loved one another. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful for the way the, the church has, has demonstrated your love to one another and to others throughout history. And God, we pray that we would that we would desire to do the same thing. Not because they did it, but because of what you have done in our lives. As we think about the community that we are that we are in, as we think about our own context. We are surrounded by people who who don't know you who don't know what the church is, who don't know the function of the church. And so often that is because of our own disunity. It is because of our own lack of love for one another. God, I pray that you would break us of that. That because of your word, you would teach us something new. And we would desire to be obedient to it. And it's in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen.